Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Now, I'm not going to start tonight by talking about the latest disheartening poll about vaccine acceptance in America or about how Australia is basically just a continent on fire, or the new proposed rules that would allow government contractors to ignore environmental rules, or about the myriad other depressing and sad stories I read about this week. It has been a rough week for trying to find stories that are simply neat or just not overly upsetting, but... I try, and so we're going to do our best tonight. To start off, let's talk about something that has irked me for a while now, ever since the first lawsuit came out, uh, but that we can now talk about with science to back us up. A major new study has found that there is no discernible link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer. It is extremely important to keep in mind that juries are not equipped to determine scientific facts, especially when those facts may be tied to very emotional things like disease or death. People are human, and so it can be very hard for them to separate the idea of people being sick without there being any kind of way in which there is a specific person to blame. And so it becomes very easy to blame those who are, especially those who are representatives of giant corporations. And so reporting in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Katie O'Brien of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and colleagues reported on their data, which is a synthesis of four large studies that combined to include around a quarter of a million women who were queried between 1982 and 2017. Now, part of the problem with why it's been hard to pin down whether or not there really is a connection here is that not a lot of people get ovarian cancer, which is of course a good thing. And so only around 1.3% of women are at risk of being affected by the disease. It's also hard to do studies that that by default must rely on the participants' recollection. The nice thing about the data set that was used is that they followed women and queried them every year or two, rather than asking them to think back over a lifetime. Among 252,745 women who were followed for a median period of 11.2 years, 2,168 developed ovarian cancer. There was no statistical significance found between women who had used the powder and those who hadn't. 
there was also no correlation with length of use. Now, of course, like with any study, it has its limitations. The authors were clear to note that two of the four data sets did not include information on frequency or duration of use. And of course, all observational studies of a large population versus controlled clinical trials aren't able to rule out possible external factors. Kevin McConway, an emeritus professor of applied statistics at Britain's Open University, who was not involved in the study, praised it as a good, competent, careful study. He noted, however, that there is no way to say that the risk is zero. Most of the risk differences that the researchers examined were not statistically significant, he said. That doesn't mean that these differences were definitely zero, only that they were small enough so that they could plausibly be due only to random variation. But if there's any sort of risk at all, the risk is very small. I'm not a woman, so can't have concerns about my own health in these respects. But if I were a woman, this wouldn't be high on my list of worries, he concluded. So, yeah, again, it's very easy to try and uh, find someone to blame for these sorts of things, but generally, there really isn't anyone to blame. Unfortunately, genetics and environmental uh, causes can just lead to people developing cancer. Okay. Let's move on now to a quick update about the new viral infection that has developed in China. And so this is a new form of pneumonia, first found in Wuhan, a city in the center of the country. It now has its first case outside of China. The WHO has announced that a Thai tourist who flew from Wuhan to Bangkok has, confirmed, has been confirmed to be infected. However, researchers are still cautiously optimistic at this stage that the virus is currently not a cause for major concern. Only one person has died, a 61-year-old who already had abdominal tumors and chronic liver disease. And very importantly, there is no suggestion that the virus spreads between people. However, Given the mild symptoms many people experienced, it cannot be ruled out. The race is on now to find the common animal to which all of the people would have been exposed. Chinese researchers have shared the sequence of six genomes of the new virus with other researchers around the world who have already started working on it. For instance, Ralph Barrick, a coronavirus researcher at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, is now attempting to synthesize a live virus based on the data, which he hopes to study in animals and develop a simple-to-use antibody test. This would quickly determine whether antibodies to the virus were present in a person's bloodstream, which would indicate that they were either infected with or at least exposed to the virus. Right now, the only way to tell if someone has the disease is to do a serum test after they've been infected. And so this would be a good um, thing to have. The WHO said in a statement that it was 
reassured of the quality of the ongoing investigations and the response measures implemented in Wuhan, and the commitment to share information regularly. Now, of course, there's been a little controversy about that because they didn't talk about it right away, but at this point it seems to be that they are working well with the rest of the world. Now, many coronaviruses find natural reservoirs in bats, and the new virus is closest to four kinds of the virus found in bats, with surface proteins capable of also infecting humans. But that doesn't mean that it is actually bats that are the culprit. It's quite similar to a bat virus in some parts of its genome, but not so much in other parts, notes evolutionary biologist Andrew Rambout of the University of Edinburgh. For now, we will have to wait and see if this develops into a larger problem, but at the moment, I still would be, wouldn't be particularly worried unless you plan to travel to Wuhan anytime soon. Okay, let's move on now and talk about a genuinely neat story. Ginkgo biloba trees, commonly known as the maidenhair, have remained virtually unchanged for tens of millions of years. They have survived multiple mass extinctions and are considered basically immortal. Individual trees can live at least a thousand years, with some suspecting they can be up to 3,000. And the new research, published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences, suggests that they may be able to theoretically live an unlimited amount of time. The only difference between an old tree and a young tree seems to be that they grow thinner rings as they age. Otherwise, the researchers found that the ability to photosynthesize, germinate seeds, grow leaves, and resist disease seem to have been comparable across the ages of all trees studied. They go so far as to suggest that plants in general could conceivably live indefinitely if not acted upon by outside forces such as drought, pests, human intervention, or other external stressors. The researchers examined nine trees aged up to 600 years or more from Anlu in Hubei province and Pizhu in Jiangsu province in China. And again, they found little evidence of the signs of aging um, or cell death, generally referred to as senescence in scientific terms, in the actual trees themselves. In humans, as we age, our immune system begins to start to be not, not so good, molecular biologist Richard Dixon from the University of North Texas told the New York Times, adding that the immune system in these trees, even though they're a thousand years old, look like that of a, two, of a 20 year old. And so uh, the researchers took a new approach that looked not at the tree's leaves, which many have done before, and which do experience senescence, but at the vascular cambium. This is a thin layer of tissue that the tree uses to produce new bark and wood, and which contains meristem cells. These are comparable to stem cells in animals, though we know a lot less about them at the molecular level. They examined the 
they examined the cambium across trees of different ages and found that the level activity level of activity hormone levels and disease resistant genes were largely the same they also found that transcription errors connected to cell death were not increased in older trees they found that there was some difference however as expressed in again the size of the tree rings older trees had lower levels of a growth hormone called indole-3-acetic acid and higher levels of a growth inhibitor called abs abscisus acid and so as the trees grow older it does slow down the production of new wood and bark but crucially it does not stop altogether the researchers believe that the tree's ability to continue to grow as well as the fact that it continues to produce flavonoids which are an antimicrobial compound throughout its life and which serve again as a protection against disease may be the keys to its survival and of course as noted there was a decrease in tree ring thickness with a sharp decline during the first 100 to 200 years and continuing at a slower rate over the next few hundred years but there definitely continued to be growth secondary tree growth measured by the tree's basal area increment didn't show any signs of decline across the different trees since BAI is a reliable indicator of tree growth, the authors write, it seems that the vascular cambium in G. biloba can retain the capacity for continuous growth for hundreds of years or even millennia. Now again, as with all of these stories, there are limitations. It could be that trees that are older than 600 to 1,000 years do have some changes, but it seems unlikely that the trees would ever actually die of old age. As we know of trees, again, that are up to a thousand, if not more, years old. And 600 is a pretty good number. So it's, it's possible, but implausible, that there would be a real difference in trees that are just a couple of hundred years older. So it's really fascinating that these trees are basically just able to survive for as long as they possibly can. Okay, let's uh, stick to biology, but switch it up a bit to talk about the newest kind of robot. Robots that have been created entirely out of living cells. The cells in question are stem cells taken from embryonic frogs that have developed into heart and skin tissue. The new robots are called xenobots and are, well, tiny. They're sub-millimeter blobs containing between 500 and 1,000 cells that are able to move across a petri dish, self-organize, and even move tiny payloads. Now, of course, you may be asking, why would anyone do this? There are a number of possible uses for such living robots, such as targeted drug delivery to environmental remediation. We've already found microbes that can eat plastic, and we might be able to deploy xenobots fitted with that ability or that eat oil or any number of toxic substances well at least potentially again all of this is very early in its research 
These are novel living machines, said computer scientist and roboticist Joshua Bongard of the University of Vermont. They're neither a traditional robot nor a known species of animal. It's a new class of artifact, a living, programmable organism. Now, they were created using a supercomputer running an algorithm that was able to configure and reconfigure the cells into different creations and simulate the results. For instance, the researchers would tell the algorithm that they were looking for something like locomotion. The program would then create candidate designs that would fulfill the requested parameter, hopefully at least. Thousands of configurations were proposed by the program with varying levels of success. They then eliminated the weakest and kept and refined the best until they were as optimal as the system could make them. The team then took the top designs and actually created them using embryonic cells from the African clawed frog. The skin cells are used as a scaffolding for the bot while the heart cells, while the heart cell muscle contractions are used for locomotion. They were able to survive in a liquid medium for up to a week without the need for additional nutrients because they had been preloaded with energy stores in the form of lipids and proteins. In one robot, they created a hole to reduce drag, which could also be converted into a pouch for transporting objects. In addition, they were able to move objects in the real world together. When the researchers added particulates to their environment, they spontaneously worked together by moving in a circular motion to push all of the particulates into one spot. And so one thing that we may be able to learn from these xenobots is more about how, how cells communicate and work together. Because again, these are just clumps of cells. They don't have any brain, they don't have any nervous system, and so for them to be able to do coordinated um, efforts like that is interesting, and we don't yet actually know how they do that, potentially. Um, and so that's kind of crazy. You look at the cells we've been building our xenobots with, and genomically, they're frogs. It's 100% frog DNA. But, they, but these are not frogs. Then you ask, well, what else are these cells capable of building? Said biologist Michael Levin of Tufts University. As we've shown, these frog cells can be coaxed to make interesting life living forms that are completely different from what their default anatomy would be. Now, of course, that's a huge thing with stem cells. And so, of course, stem cells are well known for being able to actually be turned into different kinds of cells and to be able to be reprogrammed to do things such as become weird xeno, uh, xenobots. And so, I mean, some of the promise, uh, and potential of these sorts of cell stem theory, um, sorry, uh, stem cell therapies hasn't actually worked out in the long run. 
but this sort of thing is very interesting. And so technically they're alive, but of course it depends on your definition of living. Once they run out of nutrients, they die, which does make them biodegradable, which is, you know, a potential uh, plus for them. And, but of course they can't reproduce, they can't feed, and they can't evolve on their own. So it is a little bit of a question as to whether or not you consider them to be alive. Regardless, they have the possibility to be very useful if we can find a way to actually bring them up to some sort of uh, level where they could be therapeutic. We can imagine many useful applications of these living robots that other machines can't do, Levin said, like searching out nasty compounds or radioactive contamination, gathering microplastic in the oceans, traveling in arteries to scrape out plaque. Now, a lot of those sound like great ideas. I personally am very excited about the idea of getting microplastics out of the ocean. Uh, that is a huge issue. Um, and it's one that a lot of people don't really think about all that much. Um, I know that this is kind of a sad thing to say, but one of the easy things that you can do to help with getting rid of microplastics is to not for instance, buy or use glitter, because glitter is unfortunately basically just all bad. Um, I know that it could be fun, but it's actually extremely bad for the environment. Um, and so glitter is just definitely one of those things you shouldn't use. Uh, and you want to make sure that, I think they've actually managed to get them off of the shelves, but you definitely don't want to be... Um, using any kind of beauty products that have microbeads in them because those microbeads turned out to be a huge problem. And of course, as uh, most everyone is always saying, using just in general less plastic is always for the best. Um, one of the things I always like to say is we should go back to glass because, you know, glass ends up in the ocean, but it doesn't end up actually being a contaminant the way that plastics are because you know uh, glass turns into sea glass and then you can make pretty jewelry out of it <laughs> and it's just a much better uh, material for dealing with uh, all of these sorts of concerns but of course we're not going to go back to glass for a myriad of reasons even though I would prefer it um, and so we really just need to be real careful about our plastics use as much as possible. And I'm not great at it. I try, but I'm definitely an offender amongst everyone else. And so I'm definitely not trying to, uh, accuse anyone of using too much plastic because I, I use plastic, but if we just think about it a little bit every day, hopefully we can start to find ways to reduce our plastic use. And then we will do a huge, huge service to, for instance, seabirds. And the reason I think about this is because I was just on a cruise in the Caribbean and there were all these amazing seabirds. There was an afternoon ride just for about 
an hour straight just sat on a deck and uh, watched frigate birds and they were just so incredible and beautiful and it's just so heartbreaking to think about all of the seabirds that are being uh, killed because they end up with just stomachs full of plastics and so yeah again not trying to be a downer but it's definitely a good idea to try and reduce our uh, dependence on plastics whenever and wherever we can and since it's a new year uh, try and make it into a resolution I don't know I should probably do that myself <laughs> okay let's get back to what we were actually talking about and so again the fact that they're biodegradable is very useful. We can imagine many useful applications of these living robots that other machines can't do, Levin said, like searching out nasty compounds or radioactive contaminations, gathering microplastics in the ocean, traveling in arteries to scrape out plaque. Sorry, I already read that quote because I got distracted, but that's okay. And so we'll have to wait some time for practical applications of this, obviously, but it is a very exciting new route to solve a host of varied problems. And in other robot news, well, we'll have to wait for that for just a minute because we do need to do some show promos and some PSAs. So please do stay tuned for those. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes, and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out! <gasps> Oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. 
We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. And we're back. And of course, like I said, in other robot news, we are going to talk about the pigeon bot. And so researchers have constructed what they are calling pigeon bot, a robot made from 40 pigeon feathers, along with, of course, a basic flying robot apparatus underneath. The researchers studied the movement of the wings and created a model which mimics a bird's ability to change the morphology of their wings rather than only certain elements like in a traditional plane. So in a traditional plane you have fixed wings and you can only move, for instance, the ailerons or the flaps, but the rest of the wing is rigid. And so they were able to both create a simple, simpler model for how bird wings work, as well as, again, to create an actual bird mimic robot that flies, frankly, incredibly well. You can simply use the cadaver of a bird, and there are many in museums, to develop a robot without harming any animals to study their flight, David Lentink, 
The study's corresponding author and an assistant professor of mechanical engineering explained. Laura Matloff, a Stanford University graduate student, noted that she started with a single question. How do individual feathers work together? She led a team that took measurements and used motion capture systems to study how feathers moved as they manipulated the bones of food-grade pigeon cadavers. People do still eat pigeon, by the way. Once upon a time, engineers thought that they could build a plane based on a pigeon's wing, where each and every feather would move independently. The team proved that the bird's wings move much more simply. They were able to create a model of pigeon flight using just two variables, the angle of the wing itself and the angle of the finger joint that rests halfway along the wing. A flexible tendon alters the angles of all of the feathers at the same time. In order to discover how the wings maintain their shape against airflow, the team used micro CT scanners and an electron microscope to image the system of barbs and hooks that work somewhat like Velcro to hold the wings together when spread out. The team called this directional Velcro. And so publishing their results in the journal Science, they noted the ability of this directional Velcro to withstand strong forces and a wind tunnel, among other results. Graduate student Eric Chang, who had a childhood interest in flying creatures and who was part of a competitive small aircraft design team as an undergrad, used his own knowledge, Matloff's research, and about two decades of bird-inspired robot knowledge that other people have uh, added to the general pool of knowledge in order to create the actual pigeon bot. Again, the bot consists of 40 real pigeon feathers that were attached to an artificial skeleton with two articulation points at the base of the wing and at the finger joint with rubber bands controlling the angle of the feathers. They then combined that with a propeller, artificial tail and rudder, controls and sensors, and tested it both in a wind tunnel and outdoors with a remote control. That research is published in the journal Science Robotics. I remember the first day that it flew. After we landed it successfully and it was all in one piece, I collapsed on the ground, Chang said. It was this feeling of... Oh my gosh, it actually worked, and I can breathe easier right now. The researchers hope that the bot will provide inspiration both for engineers and for those studying birds. The latter is what excites Lentic the most. He imagines a future where museums could better study bird flight by creating models based on birds in their collections. The team released the information about the feather Velcro of several species, including Cassin's kingbird, the bald eagle, and the endangered California condor. You can recreate a condor robotically to understand its flight behavior and use this insight to help the species, he said. The research could also lead to new kinds of Velcro or flying systems. But again, the teaching aspect is what excites the group, 
which I think is pretty fantastic because as I'm kind of always vaguely preaching, a lot of these stories, they are talking about how ultimately what this will do is it will lead to X, Y, or Z completely practical thing that we absolutely are striving to be able to use in the future, which, you know, absolutely has its place. But I also think it's important to remember that sometimes science is just for science. And sometimes it's just to be able to help people understand the world around them or to be able to better design things that aren't tangible necessarily, but that are things like how do we design a model of a condor in order to think better about how to actually help the species because it is obviously endangered. And I think that that's a really important thing that a lot of people lose sight of. And so um, basically research, I went to a talk years ago and they talked about how research is a pyramid. And so at the bottom is basic research and at the top is the kind of, uh, you know, very prestige things that happened that you read about in all of the science uh, journals and that end up on the cover of Newsweek and things like that. But at the bottom are those hardworking scientists just doing basic research and trying to figure out how the world works. And I think that we often do a disservice to them by kind of forgetting about them and not remembering that they are out there doing the best they can with the research that they have and um, as we've talked about before, obviously, research has become more and more hard to fund. The government is definitely not funding things the way it used to. And there have been some recent scandals where uh, people have been talking about how, oh, this study that says you should, that it's okay to eat meat was actually potentially funded by the meat industry and this other one that says that sugar isn't so bad for you was funded by sugar companies and unfortunately in a world where we don't have enough public funding for science scientists are going to end up getting caught up in those sorts of situations where even when they think they're not being biased by money they could potentially be biased and of course, they could not be biased, but in this day and age, it's really hard to uh, to believe that if you're taking money from sugar companies and then you come out with a study that says sugar isn't that bad for you, it's, you know, a bit suspicious, uh, especially since so many other studies have said the opposite. And of course, that's obviously an even more kind of philosophical question about science because we do have the issue with repeatability in science. And so we do often find that when somebody goes back to try and recreate something that a lot of times that's hard to do. And so that's a whole other uh, 
problem in science that we probably don't have time to talk about tonight because it is a very, very large uh, topic as far as the, uh, as they put it, the reproduce, the reproducibility crisis in science. And so um, I haven't been able to read enough about it to talk about it at length, but there is a, a new study out that suggests that um, some other studies that looked at the impact of ocean warming um, on fish or maybe ocean acidification on fish, um, that they couldn't replicate their results. Like I said, I didn't read about it enough to talk about it, um, but it is an outlier out there and there are issues. Um, and so again, I'm definitely a science booster, obviously, obviously. Um, but I also like to be pragmatic and I like to be open and honest about the shortcomings of science because I think it's really important not to act like it's some sort of magical, um, you know, spell that fixes everything. It's clearly not. And I think it's really important to be honest and open about that so that people can trust that while you may not know all the answers, you're at least actually doing your best to find those answers in a credible and um, non-duplicitous uh, way. And so, yeah. All right. Ramble over for now. Uh, <laughs> let us talk about uh, material science for a moment, because that's always fun. They're doing a lot of interesting things in material sciences right now. And so a combination of sand, gelatin, and cyanobacteria have been combined to create living bricks that are able to match the strength of cement-based mortar and could help us to reduce the demand for cement, which is carbon intensive. They can even heal or reproduce in a way. If you cut a brick in half within a few days, you'll have two complete bricks. Now the bricks are created using the process of biomineralization, which involves living organisms that produce minerals which can harden or stiffen tissue. They actually gained inspiration from another product that has been in the works, which is self-healing concrete. In this substance, cement is inoculated with biomineralizing bacteria in order to heal cracks. However, cement isn't exactly a great medium for growing biomaterials. We showed that you can obtain a greater survivability of, of the bacteria if you rethink the environment that you put them in, explains Will Srubar, part of the team at the University of Colorado Boulder that came up with the bricks. The new material uses a medium that is more conducive to growth and allows the biomineralization process to contribute to the structural integrity of the material itself. Srubar explains that they've achieved a substance that is structurally, that has a structural integrity um, comparable to modern mortar, noting that, quote, the, the compressive strength and mechanical properties we achieved are on the order of a cementitious mortar, 
like what you would see between the bricks in your house. And the ability for the bricks to multiply means that they can be created exponentially. A parent brick can be divided to produce two new bricks by being heated until it is a medium viscosity liquid sand solution to which new gel medium is added, with the bacteria growing for roughly six hours before Maris sand is added and the cubes are cooled and formed into new bricks. Srubar's team was able to produce three generations in a week, creating eight bricks from an original parent brick. Now, of course, we won't be starting to build houses out of this material anytime soon. Right now, we still need to solve the issue of environmental conditions for bacterial systems. The best mediums for bacterial growth are not necessarily the best for structural integrity in a building. However, Srubar's group chose to use cyanobacteria in their bricks because they are relatively resilient to stress. They are also inexpensive and can gain energy through photosynthesis. The next steps for them are to scale up the process and find bacteria with desirable traits such as desiccation resistance, which would be a really huge one. This work is a platform for other researchers to infuse different biological functionalities into a structural material, says Srubar. Being a structural engineer myself, I'm captivated by the idea of building physical infrastructures out of a material like this. So in the future, it's quite possible that buildings will be made from living materials. And in fact, uh, one of the other things I saw recently was a uh, building where they had started to um, switch out concrete for um, wood beams and they found a way to have wood I don't know if it's composites or what it was I just kind of saw the picture and briefly noted it that um, they actually had these huge beams of wood that were in place of concrete because the thing that we don't really realize is that concrete is extremely carbon um it has a huge carbon footprint also we are running out of things like sand um so that's a problem and of course this new brick uses sand so that's not great but again we need to find ways to at least do better if not perfect um, but yes, concrete is very, very, has a huge carbon footprint. And so it's really unfortunate that it is the main thing that we use to build our civilization with other than steel, which also does not have a great carbon footprint, frankly. Um, and so uh, I definitely think that biological based uh, building materials could really be a great help in the future. Okay, let us switch now from materials made from bacteria to a material that has been created to resist bacteria. Australian researchers are using liquid metals in order to develop what they hope will be bacteria-destroying materials and will be the answer to antibiotic resistance. The material works by shredding bacteria in a bacterial biofilm which leave, while leaving good cells intact. The team from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology 
published their work in the journal ACS Nano. Now, that's a publication of the American Chemical Society, uh, which has headquarters in Philadelphia. I was actually able to visit there several years ago, and it was very cool. Um, they have a nice little museum in the um, sort of in their the first floor of their building. And so if you're ever in Philadelphia, I definitely would uh, suggest stopping by ACS. I actually ended up uh, very sort of ser serendipitously finding a flyer that they were having a talk about beer with free beer. And so, yeah, it was pretty excellent. And so, yeah. Anyways, back to the actual uh, experiment. It involved exposing tiny droplets of liquid metal to a low-intensity magnetic field, which caused the material to change shape and develop sharp edges. When placed in contact with a bacterial biofilm, the edges break down the biofilm and actually rupture the cells physically. They tested the material against both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. After 90 minutes of exposure, both were destroyed and 99% of the bacteria were dead. And importantly, they've shown that the droplets do not affect human cells. Co-author Aaron Elborn from RMIT's Nanotechnology Laboratory notes that we're very much losing the war against drug-resistant superbugs and bacterial biofilm infections. Bacteria are incredibly adaptable, and over time, they develop defenses to the chemicals used in antibiotics, but they have no way of dealing with a physical attack, he says. Our method uses precision-engineered liquid, liquid metal to physically rip bacteria to shreds and smash through the biofilm where bacteria live and multiply. Now, there are, of course, multiple potential uses for the liquids, including as a coating for implants to help reduce infections for procedures like hip and knee replacements. And so it might also be able to be developed into an injectable form that could be used directly at the site of infection. And so the team has actually already started preclinical animal trials, and they also want to explore other potential uses such as to treat fungal infections, to break up cholesterol plaques, or to be used in the fight against cancer cells. So, of course, that is all very, very exciting. Okay, let's shift gears now and talk a bit about our Neanderthal cousins. A new paper published in PLOS One reports on evidence that Neanderthals gathered clamshells and volcanic rock from a beach in Italy. Now we have known that they ate fish, but we still don't have a great understanding of their full relationship to water. And this research brings us one step closer. Now, of course, for years, the dominant paradigm was that Neanderthals subsisted almost completely on the meat from large herbivores. However, in recent years, evidence of a much more varied diet, including that of fish, uh, as, you know, one would actually really expect, has been found at various sites of known Neanderthal occupation. Lead author Paola Villa from the University of Colorado and colleagues found that the majority of clamshells gathered at the site were from live animals, which would have required Neanderthals to wade or even dive in shallow waters. The artifacts found at the Grotto 
Grana dei Mascherini site date to between 90,000 and 100,000 years ago during the Middle Paleolithic. Modern humans wouldn't arrive in Europe for another 60,000 years. The grotta would once have been a cave overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. First excavated in the 1930s, it's one of two known Neanderthal sites in Italy and was excavated extensively after the Second World War. Fortunately, the cave is no longer accessible because road work in the 1970s blocked the entrance. However, a large number of artifacts have been retrieved and cataloged before the site became inaccessible. They were used to date the site in the 1990s and have been in museums in Anagni and Rome since the excavation. Villa and colleagues looked at 171 modified shells and found that they all belonged to the species Callista chione and were apparently fashioned into scrapers. While some were collected on the seashore, a significant portion of them were collected directly from the seafloor. The method of telling the shells apart was actually developed by Carlo Sringlio, a co-author of the new paper and a researcher at the University of Rome. The outer shells of live animals living in the sea are shiny, Villa said, whereas the beached specimens exposed to the sun have an opaque and patinous glossy surface. Crusts inside the shell valve left behind by marine organisms mean the animals the animal was dead, and the two valves were opened so the mollusk was dead in the sea and later taken by waves and thrown onto the beach, she said. If encrustations are on the outer shells, it means that they formed when the animal was alive in the sea. All in all, 40 of 167, or almost a quarter of the shells identified as tools, were gathered from the seafloor. They also found volcanic pumice stones, which could have been used as scrapers as well. Interestingly, they found few normal stone tools at the site. Via suggests that they may have preferred the clamshells because they are relatively thin and easy to resharpen, unlike flint tools. And it would have been relatively easy to gather them. These clams burrow in the sand, but their siphon, which they need for feeding, excreting, and reproducing, is visible. Via or Villa, I'm not sure which, uh, noted, if you see the siphon, then you know that there is a mollusk and you can use your hands to scoop the sand. And so this also corroborates evidence that some Neanderthals had bony growths in their ear canals, which is sometimes called swimmer's ear or surfer's ear, and is often seen in people who are active in water sports in colder climates. The new study confirms that Neanderthals had the broad knowledge of environmental resources generally attributed to modern humans only, said Via. No longer should we think of Neanderthals as hulking, brutish cavemen. They were clearly sophisticated humans who simply were outcompeted by modern humans. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. And I will be back next week and hopefully we will find some actually happy and interesting stories that aren't quite as much of a struggle. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.
The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.